Welcome to Abounding Grace, the preaching ministry of Pastor Sean Cole of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you for listening. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church or to obtain full-length recordings of Pastor Sean's teachings, visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. Good morning and welcome to Abounding Grace, the preaching and teaching ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm Pastor Sean Cole and I want to welcome you to our program this morning. March this month we celebrate Easter and so before we begin our program this morning I just want to invite you to come to Emmanuel Baptist Church on Easter Sunday. We will be having two worship services. Our first worship service will be at 8 o'clock a.m. And the second worship service will be at 10.45 a.m. Again, two worship services on Easter Sunday. We'd love to have you be our guest this Easter. And speaking of leading up to Easter, I want to I wanna address a question this morning that a lot of people may wonder about, and maybe we even assume we know the answer. And I think there's a lot of cultural issues going on in northeastern Colorado that really prohibit us from understanding this basic question. And here's the question. What exactly is grace? What is grace? We live here in northeastern Colorado, which is a a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap type of culture. Uh, This area is full of gritty people of the land. We've got farmers and ranchers and oil workers and people that work on the railroad. So there's a very independent spirit here that I think came with that German and Lutheran immigrants that came over in the 1800s and, and settled here in northeastern Colorado. And so there's, just, there's this ethos in our culture that I can do things by myself. I don't need any type of help. And it's also crept into the church world. And so there's this attitude that, that God helps those who help themselves. If I'm just a good person, God will reward me. God will love me. If I just attend church, if I just maybe go to mass or, or do some sacraments or show up here and there at my church, God will be happy with me. I will have eternal life because after all, God helps those who help themselves. And so I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and try really hard to be a good person. That's the culture we're living in here in northeastern Colorado. And and I want to address that because the gospel of grace is exactly the opposite of what our culture believes. There's a lot of assumptions in today's evangelical world. A lot of assumptions that people have. Whether you live in northeastern Colorado or wherever you live in the world, there's a lot of assumptions. And one of the assumptions that a lot of people have is that human beings are basically good. We're good to the core of our being. Yeah, we may do some bad things here or there, but, but humans are basically good. That's an assumption that a lot of people have. Another assumption that a lot of people have is that God owes everybody a chance to be saved, which as we will study the Bible, is not necessarily a biblical truth. There's another assumption that people have that God's not a God of wrath and that God would never punish sin and God would never be just and and pour out His wrath upon sin. Other people would have the assumption that God is somehow obligated. We're in God's debt. He, He is obligated to give us grace based upon something within us, something that we have done or something that we have earned. And I want to challenge those assumptions this morning 
by looking at the issue of grace. What is grace? Herman Bavinck, a theologian, has defined grace as this. He said, ascribe to God, grace is his voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor toward guilty sinners, granting them justification and life instead of the penalty of sin, which they deserved. Excellent definition. J.I. Packer, another theologian, has defined grace this way. He says, the grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their merit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. That's another excellent definition. So let's look this morning at four great truths, biblical truths, that will help us to understand the doctrine of grace. What is grace? What is God's grace in salvation? So here's the first biblical truth that we need to understand in order to to understand this, this doctrine of grace. First of all, the sinfulness of sin. We need to have a proper understanding of sin. What the Bible defines sin as. In Psalm 32, 1 through 2, David is confessing his sin, King David, and and, and he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. In this psalm, Psalm 32, David uses three specific Hebrew words for sin. We find these words in the Old Testament. The first word he uses is transgression. A transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This word transgression means a breaking loose or a tearing away from God. Going astray. Rebellion. It's a description of of sin being against God himself Personally, this idea that we have personally offended and transgressed and rebelled against our infinite creator. We've rebelled. The second word he uses is the word sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This word sin means a deviation, going wayward, falling short, missing the mark turning from the right path. It was often used to describe how archers would shoot arrows and totally miss the target. It's a description of sin against God's law, against God's standard. We've we've deviated. Not only have we rebelled, not only have we transgressed, but we've deviated. We've gone off the path. We've fallen short of His glory. We've missed the mark. We've missed the target. The last word that David uses is iniquity. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no Iniquity. This word really describes our condition. It means perversion, distortion, twisted, corrupt, a criminal, no respect for God. We're depraved. So these three expressions of sin sum up the totality of what it means as, as we stand condemned under God's wrath, wrath. Not only have we offended Him personally, Not only have we rebelled and disobeyed against His law, but but we're sinful to the core of our beings because of what Adam did. When Adam sinned in the garden, that very first sin, he passed on to all of us 
a sin nature. His guilt has been inherited by us. And so we are born as sinners, depraved, crooked, rebellious, standing against God, rebelling against God, going against God, going our own way. Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, describes it this way. This is what Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes." That's a very comprehensive description of of the human condition that we are sinful. We don't seek God. We don't understand. We've turned aside. We've become worthless. We, We don't do good. There's no fear of God before eyes. And this is universal. Every single person born on planet earth comes out of their mother's womb in this condition as a rebel, as a sinner, depraved, corrupt, going our way, rebelling against a holy God. So the first truth we need to understand before we understand grace is sin. We are sinners and we have offended a holy God. Which leads us to the second truth that we need to understand. God's wrath. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's a forgiving God. God is love. But... At the same time, God is also a God of wrath. God has absolute right to punish sin. God must be just and judge sin. Listen to what Jesus said in John three thirty-six. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus himself spoke of the wrath of God. And what he was saying is, is that God's wrath is on sinners. The only way to escape that wrath that is on us is by believing in Christ. And if we don't believe in Christ, Jesus says the wrath of God remains on us, which assumes that it's already there. We are already under God's wrath without Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Paul says there's coming a day when God is going to pour out his wrath and that those who are without Christ, those who have not experienced God's grace, will experience the wrath of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, because of our sin, Paul says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Now, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, we have this glorious picture of Jesus Christ returning to earth to bring about judgment. And listen to the words of Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I don't know how more clear the Scripture could be about the wrath of God and that Jesus Christ Himself, when He comes back, is going to pour out the wrath of God in righteousness when He judges and makes war against those who are His enemies. So the first thing we've seen is sin. Sin is rebellion. Sin is corruption. Sin is disobedience. All of us are sinners. All of us have gone astray. No one is good. And the second thing we've seen is that God has a a righteous response to that sin by pouring out His wrath upon that, by, by judging justly in His anger. So grace, when we think about grace... Grace doesn't think of us merely as undeserving sinners. A lot of times you'll hear people say that, that, that grace means that we're undeserving. That really is not true because that makes it sound like we're neutral. It's not simply that we do not deserve grace. Yes, we don't deserve grace. But, but let's think of the, the opposite end of that. Not only do we not deserve grace, but what do we deserve? We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. So it's not that we're undeserving. It's that we're hell-deserving. That's what we really deserve, is hell. So number one, we need to see the sinfulness of sin. Number two, we need to understand God's wrath. But number three, in order to understand grace, we need to understand our spiritual inability. We are spiritually unable to save ourselves. We are spiritually and morally unable to come to Christ in our own power. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We need grace. Jesus tells us in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come. Now, is Jesus speaking of permission or is he speaking of ability? Is Jesus saying, no one has the permission to come to me? That's not what he's saying. The original word in the the original language there in the Greek, no one can come, that word implies inherent ability. No one has the inherent ability or the power to come to me unless God does something. God must draw him. God must do something to bring a sinner to salvation because we can't come to Christ in and of ourselves. We've already established the fact that no one seeks after God. No, not one. All have turned aside. And so when you think about the scriptures, the Bible says we are are unable 
spiritually and morally to come to Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, sinners without Christ cannot please God. They cannot submit to God. They lack the ability. They lack the power. They lack anything within themselves to come to Christ, to believe in Christ, to save themselves. Thus, we need grace. To make matters even worse, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, gives five descriptions of a person without grace. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. We were spiritually dead. Anyone without Christ is spiritually dead. You lack the ability to come to Christ. A spiritually dead person cannot make themselves alive. You are dead. And then Paul goes on to say, You were following the course of this world. Secondly, not only were you spiritually dead, but you were enslaved to this world system. You could not escape the clutches of the world. And thirdly, he says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the devil. That's Satan. Lost people are in the grip of of Satan. So not only, number one, are they spiritually dead. Number two, not only are they uh, embroiled and enslaved to the world, but number three, they're under the control of Satan himself. And if that's not bad enough, look at the the fourth thing that Paul brings up. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Fourthly, we're enslaved to our own flesh, our own sin nature. We we can't help but sin because we have a corrupt nature because of, of Adam's sin that we have inherited. So we're spiritually dead. We're enslaved to the world. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to our own flesh. And lastly, notice what Paul says. And we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. It's in our very nature because of what we have inherited from Adam, because of our sin, we are in our very nature to the core of our being under the wrath of God. And notice what he says, it's like the rest of mankind. Every single person without Christ and His grace is in this condition. You're spiritually dead. You're enslaved to the world. You're enslaved to Satan. You're enslaved to your flesh. And you are a child of wrath. That is terrible news. And you can't get yourself out of that, no matter how hard you try, because you are spiritually dead. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. The the mind that is on the flesh cannot please God. And so... We need to understand the the spiritual and moral inability of sinners to save themselves. You and I cannot do it. We don't have the inherent power. We don't have the internal ability. We, at one time without Christ, were spiritually and morally bankrupt, dead, depraved in our sins. So what are the three things we've seen up to this point? Number one, when we understand the doctrine of grace or what grace is, what exactly is grace, number one, we need to understand sin. 
Number two, we need to understand that God is a God of wrath and has a right to punish sin. And thirdly, we need to understand our inability to save ourselves. But fourthly, this is really where grace comes in. God has a sovereign freedom to grant grace. We need to understand something about grace. Grace ceases to be grace if somehow God is compelled to bestow it. If God is compelled to give us grace, if God is obligated to give us grace, if there's something in us that moves God to give us grace, it's no longer grace. Grace, by its very definition, is something God in His sovereign freedom has the right to grant. God grants grace to sinners who who would never, in and of themselves, inherit that grace, earn that grace, work for that grace, do anything in themselves to get that grace. God's grace is a free gift that He, in His sovereign freedom, has the right to bestow. And one of the things that we see about God's grace is the glorious doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. How does the triune God, the the, the God who is one in essence, one in being, but yet three in distinct persons, how does the triune God grant us grace? Well, it starts with God the Father. It starts with God the Father. And God's decision to bestow grace upon, upon people started in eternity past with His electing love that He set upon His people. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What was God's purpose? God's purpose, and we don't fully understand this, it's a mystery, but before the world was created, God set His electing love upon certain sinners to be saved. So so if you're a Christian today, God's grace in your life was, was thought about, was placed upon you, what was, was ordained before you were ever even born. It, it happened in eternity past. Paul also writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, he says, Jesus saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So when did God give us this grace The scripture here says, before the ages began. So God the Father in eternity past set His electing love upon a people to be saved. God chose many for salvation and in God's mind and God's heart, not because there was anything good in those people, not because God foresaw anything inherently worthy in those people, because every single person is a sinner. Every single person stands condemned under God's wrath. God in His sovereign freedom decided before the foundation of the world to set His grace upon many for salvation in eternity past. But yet Jesus Christ the Son came in the flesh over 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect life 
on earth and then went to the cross. And on the cross, he purchased our salvation by showing us ultimate grace. The, the, the Son, Jesus Christ, came in time and died on the cross for sinners to show us grace. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. On the cross, Jesus secured an eternal redemption in His blood. One of the last words that Jesus cried out on the cross is, It is finished. It's paid in full. He paid the penalty. He took that wrath of God that we deserved. God has every right to pour out His wrath upon sinners, but Christ in our place as a substitute died and shed His blood, taking upon that wrath, taking upon that punishment, taking upon that penalty so that His people would not have to suffer the wrath of God, but would experience grace and forgiveness and redemption. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18-19. He says, Know that you were ransomed, you were bought, you were purchased from the empty ways that you inherited from your forefathers. And you weren't purchased with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. So, so grace, when we think about grace, God the Father in eternity past elected a people and decided to show them grace by predestining them before the foundation of the world. In time, God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son to come in the flesh, to die on the cross, to purchase those people for Himself through the precious blood of His, uh, of his body and blood being poured out as a sacrifice for sinners. But yet, there comes a point in time where every single person that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, and and for those for whom He has died, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes in time and applies that election, applies that electing grace, and applies that atoning work of Christ upon those chosen people in time where they become a Christian. And it's, the, it's called the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. It's called being born again. It's that, it's that moment in time where the Holy Spirit grants you grace that causes you to be born again. He applies the work of the cross to your heart so that you open your eyes and believe in Jesus. In John chapter 3, 3 through 8, Jesus says these famous words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and blows that wind of His grace into the lives of His people and causes them to be born again. Their eyes are open. They're they're, they're released from spiritual depravity. They're released from spiritual deadness. They're released from their bondage. And the Holy Spirit grants them new life and grace. This happened to Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, she was a, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. And Paul goes down to the riverside and begins preaching the gospel. And Acts 16.14 says that the Lord opened her heart 
to receive the message from Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Her heart had to be opened by, by, by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit had to come in and open her heart to receive the message. Titus 3, 3-7 For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of anything we've done, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So grace... There's an understanding of our sinfulness before God. There's an understanding of the wrath of God and His right to punish sin. There's an understanding of our, of our spiritual and moral inability to save ourselves. And then lastly, there's this idea that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have the sovereign right to grant us grace. So what's the only thing you can do? If you can't produce this, if you can't earn this, if you can't work for this, what's the one thing you can do? Here's what the Bible says. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's what Acts 16.30 says. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Romans 10.9 and following says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What better time than Easter season to understand grace and to call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Jesus today and experience His free gift of grace.